following is an excerpt from the book The Mountain Trail and its message, written in 1911 by Albert W. Palmer. A Parable of Sauntering There is a fourth lesson of the trail. It is one which John Muir taught me during an early Sierra Club outing. There are always some people in the mountains who are known as hikers. They rush over the trail at high speed and take great delight in being the first to reach camp and in covering the greatest number of miles in the least possible time. They measure the trail in terms of speed and distance. One day, as I was resting in the shade, Mr. Muir overtook me on the trail and began to chat in that friendly way in which he delights to talk with everyone he meets. I said to him, Mr. Muir, someone told me you did not approve of the word hike. Is that so? His blue eyes flashed, and with his Scotch accent, he replied, I don't like either the word or the thing. People ought to saunter in the mountains, not hike. Do you know the origin of that word, saunter? It's a beautiful word. Away back in the Middle Ages, people used to go on pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And when people in the villages through which they passed asked where they were going, they would reply, A la Siante Terre, to the Holy Land. And so they became known as the Santie Terriers, or Saunterers. Now these mountains are our Holy Land, and we ought to saunter through them reverently, not hike through them. John Muir lived up to his doctrine. He was usually the last man to reach camp. He never hurried. He stopped to get acquainted with individual trees along the way. He would hail people passing by and make them get down on hands and knees if necessary to see the beauty of some little bed of almost microscopic flowers. Usually, he appeared at camp with some new flowers in his hat and a little piece of fur bough in his buttonhole. Now, whether the derivation of saunter Muir gave me is scientific or fanciful, is there not in it another parable? There are people who hike through life. They measure life in terms of money and amusement. They rush along the trail of life feverishly, seeking to make a dollar or gratify an appetite. How much better to saunter along this trail of life, to measure it in terms of beauty and love and friendship, how much finer to take the time to know and understand the men and women along the way, to stop a while and let the beauty of the sunset possess the soul, to listen to what the trees are saying and the songs of the birds, and to gather the fragrant little flowers that bloom all along the trail of life for those who have eyes to see. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Off the Beaten Path. I am your host, the Will Man, a.k.a. DJ Skittles, Sweet Willie Nine Toes, or whatever the heck you want to call me today. How about we just change my name every episode and just live with that. You know, I think I need to start off today, though, with, uh, with a little bit of an apology in that uh, it's taken me a long time to get this episode rolling along. So there's many reasons for that. Sometimes life takes over and grabs you by the horns and says, eh, 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 not today. So I've been very 
preoccupied by Life Matters outside of uh, Nine Toes Studios here in Eugene and Life Matters that go on globally and across the country. And, you know, one of the one of my distractions, honestly, has been this whole impeachment trial thing. And I know I keep saying I don't want to talk about politics, but damn it, I kind of do. And so I'm not going to bury you, though, in, in the facts. I just I have opinions and, and sometimes I want to state those opinions. And so maybe that's a future episode. I, you know, I don't know. We'll just have to figure it out. Anyway, once again, apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. It's finally here, though. Coming up, part two of Aaron Nicholson and Through Hiking on Off the Beaten Path. Once again, a hearty and boisterous welcome to the now third episode of Off the Beaten Path, made possible by my friends at Anchor.fm, the easiest way to make a podcast. I think the best thing about Anchor is that the app basically sets you up for success, especially beginners like me who are discovering this new wonderful way to tell stories. Anchor.fm provides all the tools and even has helpful hints. All you need is an idea, a little time, and some motivation. But enough about them. As I said in the pilot preview episode of Off the Beaten Path, this program is a work in progress. It's evolving, ever-changing, and most importantly, created entirely in my mind during those long hours I spend behind the wheel of a transit bus. You know, it's always amazing to me how you can have an absolutely packed bus full of people, conversation, noise, and yet feel so alone and isolated behind the wheel sometimes. Just me and my thoughts. Honestly, though, behind the wheel is where I tend to do most of my critical thinking. And perhaps someday I shall reveal even more of my creative process. But for now, it's off to the subject at hand. You remember in uh, part one of my interview with the avid recreational hiker my friend Aaron Nicholson or is it Saunterer now? Um, anyway, Aaron, we learned a little bit about his hiking background and the events that led to what is now basically his passion for the through hiking experience. He talked about the importance of researching your hike and also getting organized for your hike or your sauntering before you go. And he also gave us some little teasers about his experience hiking. Today in part two of the conversation... We will talk about the kind of equipment you need specifically, and then all the intricacies of the through hiker experience. We pick up the conversation where we left off, where Aaron talked about the critical importance of what he noted as the big three. So when I say big three, I'm talking about your pack, your shelter, and your sleep system. You got to have all three of those. Your pack needs to be sturdy. It needs to be reliable. It needs to carry, needs to be large enough to carry what you're going to carry for that trip, but no larger than that and no heavier than that. So um, I decided, for example, when I was doing my uh, Pacific Crest Trail trip, having recently carried a monstrously heavy pack on my Oregon-only no resupply section hike, I said, you know, I'm just going to make myself buy a 29-liter pack, and I am going to fit in it whatever I can, and that's going to be the limiting factor. And that was how I made myself go ultralight. So I did get a 29-liter pack, and it was a weight a pound and a half. 
It was um, it was actually an REI store brand pack, so it wasn't like top top of the line, but you know, good and um, at a good price point too. So I appreciated that. Did but, comfort uh, play any part in that? Comfort, you- yes, yes. You cannot have a pack that makes you hurt because you won't make it very far. So you know that particular pack and most packs these days are internal frame packs. The the days of the external frame aluminum frame packs are are pretty much gone comfort to me the biggest part of comfort is i don't want to have too much weight on my shoulders if you're wearing a backpack correctly most of the weight should be on the hip belt and uh with that particular pack i was able to do that you know your your shelter and your sleep system also represent a huge amount of weight of what you're carrying it's like if you can get sub two pounds on all three of those pack shelter sleep system you're doing pretty good um you know my shelter at the time i had a lot of different shelters but most of my probably the first half of my pct trip i actually just had a bivy sack that is just this sort of sleeve that you sleep in and it was made at a tyvek um i actually i got this idea from, from the internet and i uh had i contracted with a seamstress to sew it and by contract with a seamstress i mean i got my mom to do it uh so she made me this Tyvek bivy sack and I would just slide my sleeping bag into the bivy sack and sleep. And that worked okay. Um but I realized that after you crinkle up Tyvek by rolling it up and strapping it to the bottom of your pack for hundreds of miles, eventually uh the waterproofness goes away. So I switched about mid-hike to a uh, Sierra Designs single person tent which weighs about two and a half pounds, a little heavier. I'm glad you mentioned the word tent because I was about to ask you, and it seems like maybe a dumb question, but is is shelter the same thing as a tent? Yeah, so there are different types of shelters. The tent would be kind of the classic, you know, you sort of build your own mini cabin with a tent, right? You know, a bivy sack would be another one, which is a sleeve that you sleep in. More and more people are just bringing uh, tarps, and they'll just pitch a tarp and sleep under the tarp. That's another popular one. And the interest there is is to keep the weight light. Yes. So uh, if you, like I said, if those the big three, you got the pack, the shelter, and the sleep system, if you can keep each of those categories under two pounds, uh, that's generally a good ultralight rule of thumb. Uh, I think my sleeping bag was about two pounds, but I've got a lighter one since then. So sleep system, I mean, that, that almost implies it's just more than a sleeping bag. Is Yeah, right. you're going to have a pad generally. Some people use a foam pad. Um, I tend to be kind of sore if I just use a foam pad so I've gone to a shorty lightweight inflatable 9 ounce thermarest pad and then foam for the feet part of it so like my upper body's got the inflatable and then I've got like a, a roll out mat for my feet alright so now you got your pack you got your shelter ideas and systems and your sleep systems in place what's next well there's lots of other stuff you gotta bring so for example, if you're cooking, you don't always have to cook. Some people go stoveless, but if you are bringing a stove, it's a good idea to, again, bring one that is as light as possible but also reliable. Uh, one of my favorites is a homemade piece of gear called a cat can stove, and that is basically a fancy feast can with the uh, cat food dumped out of it, and you clean it out and use a hole punch and punch holes around the top of it, and you dump in denatured alcohol like uh, heat which is a fuel additive you can buy in a yellow bottle. You can also use, like I said, denatured alcohol. Um, is that like Sterno? Homemade or uh, different? No, it's a little different. So denatured alcohol, you just get at a hardware store. Um, and then, it's probably less in yeah, cost. Yeah, it's cheaper. Heat is a fuel is a fuel system additive for your car. You can burn either one. But um, 
you just dump the fuel in there and light it, and then you know it's a cat food can. It doesn't weigh anything. You can also get um, the MSR Pocket Rocket. It's another one that I like, and that's a canister stove. It just screws onto the top of a canister, and um, it's pretty lightweight. The biggest problem with stoves is you know the the fuel resupply. I found on most resupply areas you could get denatured alcohol. Someone had it; they were giving it away. There's leftover in the hiker box. We can talk more about hiker boxes when we talk about trail community, but generally it's available at your town stops. And so homemade gear, uh, ultralight packing, and obviously clothing. I mean, in layers, I've always. Wherever I've gone, no matter what the adventure is, layers has always been the rule, assuming the same. Yeah, layers are important. So, um, you know, we, we talked about as far as gear goes, uh, the big three, we talked about cooking system. Clothing would be another big concern. So you want to make sure that you have enough clothing because it's going to get cold when you're at high elevations. Layers are important. The big thing I found was don't count on hiking and sleeping in the same clothes. If you hike all day, you're going to get sweaty. And then if you try to sleep in that same shirt, guess what? That shirt's wet. Don't do that. It's dangerous. So you should have a whole different set of, uh, I just call them pajamas, whatever you're going to sleep in, right? They're not literally pajamas, but you have a sleep, a, you know, long sleeve shirt, you know, some long johns or whatever. That's what you sleep in. When you hike, you're going to have probably a few short sleeve, couple of short sleeve shirts. I think I just, I usually rotate two of them and then I'll do laundry and I'll, I'll wash it in the river and hanging on the back of my pack and it'll dry as I'm hiking pants. I generally go with zip off pants. So they're shorts and long pants as needed. Usually have a long sleeve, warmer shirt, a warmer hat, a brimmed hat, like a sun hat gloves. If necessary, it all depends on how cold you plan it to be, depending on where you're going, but well, um, be, be prepared when it comes to the clothes. Weather is fairly unpredictable. Most of the time. I mean, yes, yeah, so, but I imagine when you're out there without, you know, access to google or weather forecasts and you just don't know you need to be prepared for everything yeah and the rain gear comes in as well if you were to get out there and have no rain gear not even an emergency poncho then everything you're wearing would get soaked and yeah that would be miserable at the time in the daytime but when you're at you know eleven thousand feet and you're wet and then the temperature goes down to 30 even though it's july that's dangerous. So yeah, you got to be very careful. Uh, you also, it's a good idea to have a pack liner or a pack cover so you can keep your clothes dry on the inside, the ones that you're planning to sleep in. Um, but yeah, just be prepared. Just know that it's going to rain at some point probably, and you need to be prepared for that. Don't wait till you're there and then realize, oh crap, I should have brought, you know, this rain gear, this piece of thermal, whatever. What was the most important piece of gear that you had that you found the most useful? Well, apart from, you know, my pack, which allowed me to carry everything, I would say probably the, having a, uh, a really versatile, warm, long sleeve shirt. So it wasn't a Swiss Army knife? No, though I did have one. <laughs> um, but uh, I will say if you can, if you can have that layer the the moisture wicking long sleeve shirt if i had to go as far as clothing and whatnot um what's the what's the most important that would be it because you know what you can hike in that you can roll the sleeves up you can you know whatever that's that's kind of your most important layer i would say now for me i would probably want to add to my gear a lightweight fishing pole and an assortment of lures just because i like fish i mean did you do anything like that no i didn't um i 
I don't fish that often. I mean, I have, but I've never gone, I've never combined fishing with backpacking. And part of the reason was if I'm backpacking, I usually want to focus on making miles. And if I'm stopped fishing, cleaning fish, cooking fish, etc. To me, that's just a different activity and I never combined the two. Also, the weight of your fishing gear, to me, it's not justified bringing that for the calories you get from the fish. It's like you might as well just carry extra food weight. But if you enjoy fishing and you want to make that part of it, a lot of people certainly do that. Certain times of the year, you could also harvest, you know, natural foods that you can find along these trails. Berries, nuts, roots even. Did you do any of that? I ate some huckleberries along the way. I didn't spend any significant amount of time looking for food. I just planned on... To me, the focus was making miles, and so I, I ate what I mailed myself or what I purchased. Um, but, you know, when you're walking along and there's some mountain huckleberries right there, I was known to stop for five or ten minutes and gorge myself because it's kind of like an on-trail dessert. So let's talk about the walk a little bit, the actual really 2,650 miles. That is that's an incredibly long distance, and I don't know, it just seems there's a multitude of of physical challenges that can be associated with that. Uh, let's talk about some of those. Uh, what were some of the physical challenges you encountered? Sure. So speaking about the PCT specifically, but these are consistent with a lot of long trails. Uh, if you're going over mountain passes, that's going to be really difficult because you're gaining so much elevation. So walking uphill obviously requires more effort than walking downhill generally. I mean, that's part of it. It's just the, the general strenuous, how many calories you burn and getting to the top of that, you know, 12,000 foot pass or whatever. On the PCT, the highest pass is Forester Pass, which is 13,200 feet. And I've been over Forester Pass in July and it was snowing, as in snow was falling out of the sky in July. So that's how high up it was. That's, you know, obviously a, a huge obstacle, not insurmountable, but you do a whole bunch of those, especially in the high Sierra. And it's just like pass after pass. And you're just getting really tired because you're going up and then down, up and down. It's like a 3000 foot pole to get over one and then 3000 foot drop on the other side. How does that play on your mind? Remember what I said earlier about kind of going somewhere else in your mind and rising above the agony. Sometimes you'd have just have to do that. You have to be like, you know what? Yeah, this is extremely tiring and I'm extremely tired and I'm just going to have to think about something else right now. And I think it's Part of the reason I am good at this is you just do a lot of on-trail daydreaming. And just to clarify, when you say extremely tired, that's not like, yawn, I'm tired, I think I need to go to bed. It, uh, this is a physical and, and in a mental sense. Yeah, just exhaustion. Uh, I mean, take breaks when you need to, but when you're, if you're uh, in a mountainous region going up and down, up and down, up and down, you're just going to get extremely exhausted. So that would be... You know, we talked about physical challenges. That would be probably, you know, number one on the list. Okay. Um, other obstacles getting your way. You talked a little bit about mountain passes. Elevation change. Thin air. Yeah. So I am pretty blessed in that I can usually hike from 9,000 feet to 12,000 feet. And I'll feel it a little bit as far as the oxygen content. Uh, but it's still, if a lot of people are more affected by that, especially in that nine to 12,000 foot range. The thin air, if you're gasping for oxygen because you're not you, not used to that thin of air, it really uh, taxes your energy level. So that that can be definitely uh, a big one. You ever thought of hiking Mount Everest, speaking of thin air? That requires some mountaineering skills that I'm not going to say I couldn't have, but I've never done that degree of 
mountaineering. Uh, mountains I've been to the top of have generally been like a trail to the top scenario. For example, uh, I think I mentioned I went to the top of Mount Whitney, 14,505 feet, and it's up there and you start to feel the thin air like we talked about, but there's a trail all the way up there. There's no there's no actual like rock climbing. Um, I will say oh. um, hmm. I have done climbing when I did the Sierra High Route. A lot of those passes, you have to actually climb hand over hand, scramble over rocks, etc. So, so that it sounds it. different. I mean... Yeah, it's different from from Mount Everest. You know, okay. I've never been up Mount Everest. I don't own an oxygen c- container, which I it's my understanding you need that for that. But it would be fun. On your outline, you you wrote down river crossings and snow and ice traverses. Well, let's talk about river crossings. Are there a lot of those? Yeah, on the PCT in particular, there are some pretty notorious ones. And uh, it depends on how much snow there was the winter before and how fast that's melting. So um, there are some uh, river crossings. I'm thinking of a, a few on the PCT that sometimes the water can be up to your waist or your chest, depending on what time of year you go. And if hopefully you have trekking poles, so you have four points on the river bottom. But that can be dangerous because it'll sweep you off your feet. And uh, if you neglect to unbuckle your backpack, which you should never do, but some people do, um, and you're strapped into your backpack and you fall, then you can end up with a situation where you're, you know, sucked under, you know, your backpack's keeping you down or whatever. So always, un- always unbuckle your backpack. Uh, that can be that can be uh, a little dicey. I never actually, um, I never actually fell in and went completely under headfirst, but I definitely lost my footing at a river crossing. And uh, if it's swift, you know, that can be pretty dangerous. Snow and ice traversing, you're going to encounter some especially when you get up in elevation and like you said it was july and there was snow coming down probably not that all uncommon really yeah i mean there's year-round glaciers on these trails i'm talking about i i um all these trails that i mentioned the pct jmt the ct the shr they all have year-round snow fields and glaciers that you have to cross and if there's still a lot of snow from the previous winter there's just going to be, uh, you know, seasonal snow that's just still there. So there's some tricks there. You want to ideally go across those kinds of things in the morning because the overnight the snow is solidified a little bit. It's it's crunchier, harder. You can walk on top of it. If you wait till late morning or the afternoon, it's going to be a little softer, and you're going to be what they call post holing, where you're, you know, stepping in up to your knee and making hardly any progress at all. There are some steep snow crossings. There's one called the chute on the south side of Forester Pass on the PCT. That's pretty infamous. Uh, it's my understanding people have actually died there. Uh, but if it's really steep, you know, you have uh, spikes that you put on. I had some uh, micro spikes that I would put on my feet. I also had an ice axe so you can self-arrest if you start to go down. But um, if you're sliding down the hill, you lose your footing and you, you, pick, you pick up speed pretty quick. And if you hit a rock, you might be done. Water sources, hydration is super important take care of your body personally i don't know when i'm out in the woods i i'm perfectly comfortable drinking out of streams from the you know from the higher elevations yeah and a lot of people do that that's called um when you talk about your water filtration and all that you know some people use a filter some people use bleach some people use the dip and sip method is what they call that um i don't usually dip and sip the reason i don't usually dip and sip is not because i'm afraid of water out in the wilderness 
it's because I generally have a filter with me for those times when you're hiking along and you're thirsty and you come across this puddle that looks great for maybe 100 feet. And you get up there and it's just full of algae and junk and crap. It's going to taste bad. I want to have a filter for that, so I pack it for those circumstances. And since I'm already packing it, I just make a habit of using it at every source because you never know when you're drinking out of a stream, maybe there's a dead marmot 100 feet upstream. That said, I've never had Giardia. Giardia is not as common as people think, but it is possible. The biggest concern with water is if you're hiking in the desert. I think I mentioned the southern roughly 700 miles of the PCT is considered the desert section, and there's lots of water concerns in there. Water is sparse. Even in the spring, it's very hot, and so you're sweating a lot. I carried as much as five liters sometimes between sources. There are some dedicated volunteers who maintain water caches at known places on the trail. There are, People have mixed feelings about whether or not that is okay. Um, the problem there is if hikers come to rely on a water cache and they get there and it's empty, then they're kind of screwed. Um, but yeah, that would be the biggest concern is, you know, if it's 100 degrees and you're out of water... You know, you can, you can really, uh, heat exhaustion. I've had heat exhaustion once. It's not fun. Um, yeah, you really, uh, don't get dehydrated. Now we've already touched on this a little bit, uh, talking extreme heat and hydrate hydration. Um, we've also talked on about getting wet. Uh, what happens if it gets, you know, super cold overnight, all risky stuff. Anything else to add to that? The importance of, of knowing before you go? Yeah, I would say um, it's good to just generally have a good sense of hygiene. Uh, if possible, wash your hands or you know use hand sanitizer because if you get sick out there and you're in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be really, really miserable. Um, so that would be a good, a good uh, something to be cognizant of. Also, avoid getting lost. So know where you are, stay found, know how to use your map and compass that would be a good one as well. Just have those skills before you go. Also, don't push yourself into a situation that is unreasonably unsafe. Something where it's very likely that you're going to hurt yourself. So for example, if you're going to go a certain, take a certain path, especially if you're off trail hiking and it's just too dangerous, then just find another way to go. Uh, just don't, don't, uh, be, know your limits, I guess is the, is the best thing there. Stay in your lane. Yeah. You could say you put it that way, and I think you said that right up front in the very beginning. Um, you, it's super important to know what you personally are capable of. Yeah, um, a friend of mine um, who I hiked the SHR with put it really well. She said, "There's the safety zone, then there's the growth zone, then there's the danger zone." So the growth zone is cool because it's a little bit beyond what you're comfortable with, and maybe there's some things that are like quasi risky but still basically doable. Uh, when you start treading the line between the growth zone and the danger zone, that's when, you know, maybe you don't want to go any further. Like when you're doing something that probably will end up with you taking a significant risk to your own health or safety. You wrote down here, navigation, staying on the trail, uh, trail markers, using off-trail navigation skills. Uh, and you also mentioned just a little bit ago about going off-trail. What are some of the reasons you would do that? Well, if your route is your intended route involves off-trail hiking, uh, as my experience did uh, with the Sierra High route uh, when I went with my friends uh, Elisa and Sue, uh, that was just part of the trip. Is we we were just going to go off-trail because that's how you get where we were going. Um, 
it is easier to hike on trail certainly and when we would get done with the off trail sections um, and get back onto you know some some side trail that was part of the route it was kind of a, a breath of fresh air like oh we can we can we can coast for a while but why would you do that i guess so you can go places that other people generally don't go you can see things that are generally not seen and uh for the challenge you know why do why do people um why do people climb everest for the challenge as part of it mental mentally challenging i know we've touched on it a little bit were there times when you just wanted to give up yeah there were days um on every trail i've hiked every long trail where i just said oh man why did i why did i do this i'm not having fun right now I, I wish i was home i'm soaking wet i'm tired i'm really sick of academia nuts or whatever and so then usually you know what my savior in those situations is it's music i'll have a bunch of music loaded on my phone and i'll put my earbuds in and i'll walk and i'll listen to whatever and that'll kind of that'll kind of improve my mood do you have a go-to I do, so I I have kind of a funny story about that. Um, I had one of those days where I was mentally not having it in the desert section of the PCT, and I thought, you know what's going to save me from this and what it's going to get me to go, the, I think it was 37 miles that day to get to a campground where I was resupplying. I need to do an on-trail Zepathon, right? So I'm going to listen to all the studio albums, and I'm going to listen to them you know, in chronology, and that's going to get me through my day. And I did that, and it got me, that was 37 miles, which hitherto was my longest hiked day. And since then, I thought, man, uh, Zeppelin saved me that day. You know, it took me out of my slump and put me in a good place. And so I would say from then on, probably uh, Zeppelin was my go-to because I can listen to any other stuff. And it just makes whatever, uh, you know, soggy or excruciating misery I'm going through, it makes it manageable and actually fun. I, I know you said uh, there's some days when you have zero hiking you want to do or nero hiking. What was like your average length? You just said 37 miles was like the longest distance you went in one day. What would be an average? It depends on the trail. So when I was on the PCT, my overall average for the entire trip, I think, was 26 miles a day. But that's considering that when you resupply you're probably going to burn half a day off trail going to whatever campground and getting food you know if you take a zero or a nero that takes the average down uh, i took six days off when i went to willamette pass to do trail work as we talked about so that brought the average down a typical day when i was on my pct trip and i had gotten through the sierra and was just cruising uh, a typical day was probably 33 to 35 miles i had two 40 mile days that were my longest days um, I just kind of go for it. I mean, I, I'm out there to hike, and so I hike. And so I wake up in the morning, I eat some breakfast, and I just hike all day. And I don't usually, uh, like, stop for an official lunch. I'll just sort of snack all day until, like, usually until almost it gets dark. And that's just how I go for it. When you're out there hiking all day, is it? do you have in your mind, okay, my goal is to make it to this destination by this time? Or are you just kind of walking and and checking out your surroundings hearing the sounds seeing the whatever is there to be seen taking in the beauty i am taking in the beauty but i'm also having goals so usually what i'll do is i'll sit in my tent at night and be like oh i can get to this you know whatever town stop by this day if i make this many miles today and that many miles tomorrow and that many miles the next day and then i'll plan it out and then the next day it will go i either won't get as far as i thought or i'll get farther than i thought 
And so it's like I found every single night I was sort of reassessing how far I wanted to go. And I finally got to the point where I realized, you know, I need to just not excruciatingly plan every single day because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how far you're going to go. So since then, I kind of just chilled out on that. And I'll make tentative plans, but I'll usually just ballpark when I'm going to be where to get food. And I'm, I haven't had experience at it where I can just get you know, a certain amount of food, sort of weigh it in a bag in my hand and be like, oh, I, I think that's probably about four days worth of food, sure, and just go with it. Spending too much time alone, you wrote that down in one of your notes, what's that all about? Uh, it can get a little lonely out there, um, especially like when, when we were doing the Sierra High Route, you know, there were three of us, which was great, um, but we hardly saw any other people at all, because that there are very few people who attempt to through hike this year at high route in you know in one in one go um and there's just not that many not that many people out there so if you were doing something like that by yourself uh it would get really lonely you know thankfully on that trip i had friends with me but i i think if i had attempted that myself i would have been like a little bit going nuts you know um the pct and the jmt are both um pretty busy and so you see people every day. If you want to talk to people, you can. But there are instances when you just feel a little bit too alone. And yet there's still people out there that are probably all about that whole vision quest kind of, can I do this alone? In in it for the solitude. Yeah, I think so. And I think that I generally am, I'm generally a pro-solitude person. But uh, you also have to have some interaction. It's a balance. So the Pacific Coast Trail, again, is 2,650 miles long. It stretches from literally the most southern border of the United States to the most northern border of the United States along the uh, Pacific uh, region, from the deserts to the high mountains uh, into some valleys, too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very diverse. Uh, they call it the Pacific Crest Trail. Did I say coast? Uh, you might have. That's a extremely, My bad. It's an extremely common mistake, though. So I'm sure it I'm, is. I'm actually glad you made it because uh, we can we can put that in the interview and people will, people will know. Oh yeah, that's that's. So you're gonna go. You know, there's mountains, there's desert, there's um, your the lowest point on the Pacific Crest Trail is the Columbia River. Not Death Valley. You don't go through there. You don't go through Death Valley, but you go through a lot of different mountain ranges. You know, you go through the San Jacinto's, San Bernardino's in the south. Um, you go through the High Sierra, uh, you go through some of the North Sierra, you go through like Lassen National Park, that's uh, more the North Sierra, and then you get into the Siskiyous, which is kind of an offshoot of the Cascades, you go up, basically follow the Cascades all the way north to Canada. You know, I, I think in my lifetime I've been on different sections of this trail, or at least crossed over it via the highway, South Lake Tahoe, I used to live there, and, and does the trail go through there? Yeah, um, the trail gets pretty close to Tahoe. I actually uh, got to that road that goes west of Tahoe. I'm forgetting the number now because I'm not from California. Or Highway 50. That sounds Highway right. 80. Yeah, I it has to. At, at some point, it has to cross both. Uh, before that, probably Highway 88. I think that's right. I hitched a ride in from that uh, highway crossing to South Lake Tahoe, and I, I saw in Yogi's guide, she said that you can go to State Line, Nevada, which is very near South Lake Tahoe. Yes. And there are buffets at the casinos, <laughs> and uh, I plan to take a zero at South Lake Tahoe and just eat at the buffet, like, every single meal, because I was starving by that point. It was like I could eat 6,000 calories in a day, and I still didn't get enough. 
I was just ravenously hungry. And so I went, I went to South Lake Tahoe and, um, so yeah, it goes right through there. That was, uh, I was intending to take a zero, but like I said, I get a little stir crazy and I ended up just being a zero. So which uh, buffet, just out of curiosity, did you visit? I don't remember. Um, what was the name of that casino? Is it Harris? Casino? I think it was Harris because I think it's I have fantastic. a, I think I have a pen that I saved from Harris because my, as I recall, my journal pen when we could put, and so I, I brought their pen and I think I still have that pen somewhere. But yeah, I tipped back like five plates of food. I went in there. It was just like crazy, you know? <laughs> it's, well, from experience, one, I used to live in South Lake Tahoe. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Northern California. So cruising up Highway 50 for two hours to get to South Lake Tahoe, no big deal. And then when I became of drinking age, it was on. Like, it was almost a every weekend thing. Go to the casino, try to win money, scarf at the buffet, you know come home i'm glad you said scarf because uh there's a some terminology and I, we'll talk about the terminology here in a bit but i wanted to give you a little a little preface uh the scarf and barf is what through hikers refer to uh a buffet because you're you're starving right you go there and you eat way too much way too fast and then you literally eat till you're sick that frequently happens you wrote a blog um, yeah. about your journey and yeah. I think I followed it through all the way to the point where you took a break and came back to Eugene and again we're going to get to that part the uh, Pacific Crest Trail Association but along the way you found some really like super good sounding places to eat uh, one was a burger joint in particular and I believe it was before you hit the, the John Muir wilderness kind of in the desert portion am I right about that? Yeah there were lots of good burger joints and they all were probably average burger joints but when you're that hungry they're really good burger joints probably my favorite burger that i ever had was in stahican washington uh the one you're referring to trying to remember exactly there so many miles so many burgers (laughs) um makes sense but uh yeah i usually so my typical town stop i'd I'd get to a road i'd hitch into whatever little town it was i'd find a burger joint eat the burger and it was usually like as much possible toppings as I could order on there. I would usually ask, you know, for like a bottle of mayonnaise or something, and I would just dunk the fries in the mayonnaise to get more calories. <laughs> so this is my burger experience, and they were all pretty much like that. It was, uh, but yeah, you find some little mom and pop place to make you a good burger, and that was the way to go. What about those stretches where there was no outlet or resource like that? What kind of what kind of foods do you eat when you're you know, in the middle of nowhere. Well, sometimes your resupply would not be at an actual town per se. So, for example, that you're crossing a highway, and but there's one uh, in Southern California where you cross this highway, and there's nearby there's like a truck stop, and there's a McDonald's, but the McDonald's is less than a mile from the trail crossing. So everyone goes to that McDonald's, right? So imagine you're hiking along, and I want to say it was like within the first couple hundred miles, but it's you're into it enough that you're getting pretty hungry. And you go in there, and you're smelly, and you're sweaty, and <laughs> dirty, and you go into this McDonald's, and here's all these other smelly, dirty people ordering as many things off the dollar menu as they can possibly eat. And they're just this whole McDonald's during certain times of year is just overrun with these people who... Uh, their appearance is not generally what you would consider acceptable in a restaurant. Uh, a lot of through hikers, um, I'll say like, I'll say they, they appear to be like recreationally homeless. 
because it's kind of what you're doing when you're through hiking for four to five to six yeah. months. You're choosing to not have a permanent place of residence. And so you go in there and there's a bunch of recreationally homeless people eating at McDonald's. And that is such a great experience because all those people are just wonderful people just loving the fact that they're at McDonald's. Trail foods, like, is that trail mix and and dehydrated foods or what is that? Well, when you're eaten out of your backpack, the stuff you mailed to yourself, which frequently happens. What did you mail to yourself? Uh, that's a great question. So Snickers. There was candy in there. Um, I'm a big fan of Winco because Winco has a gigantic bulk food section. And anything that is sitting in that bulk food section will sit in your backpack just as easily. Right? It's all shelf stable. And it's way cheaper than uh, freeze-dried stuff. You can buy freeze-dried. Um, I had a few like gear and food sponsorships for my PCT hike, uh, which I blogged about. But freeze-dried stuff is just so expensive, I think. Um, so I, you know, I bring like dried banana chips... Uh, I bring, um, you know, raisins, I bring trail mix, um, I bring, you know, basically anything, those little peanut butter pretzel nuggets, those are really good. Uh, so that was just, you know, snackage. Usually for breakfast, I'd have cereal with powdered milk basically every morning. I had a number of different like bars that I would bring. I got some, some bar sponsorships, uh, they hooked me like up. Like Cliff Bar, that kind of thing? Like that, but it wasn't Cliff Bar. Okay. Um. In fact, I think they were brands that might not even exist anymore. But um, I had this one this one company called Soy Joy, and they gave me their bars. And they're actually really good. And they gave me a whole bunch of them, so I ate a lot of those. Um, and then for dinner, I'd have some kind of usually instant food, like uh, you know instant mashed potatoes. Uh, I'd make a ramen bomb, which is a thru-hiker favorite. It's when you make ramen with too much water, and then you dump in a packet of instant potatoes. It's pretty good. I've never heard of that before, but actually almost sounds good enough to try at home. Hamburger helper kind of stuff, you know, usually sans hamburger, just instant shelf food. Um, it's been said that through hikers are the healthiest unhealthy people on the planet. And that's probably because of what they eat because they're exercising a lot, which is healthy. And they're generally eating absolute garbage, which is not healthy, but they sort of balance each other out. Well, there you go. So now you have a basic idea of what it's like to hike the Pacific Crest Trail and what you need to bring, how to keep yourself healthy, what kind of hazards you encounter, and the many other details that involve through hiking. In the third and final part of Aaron's journey as a through hiker, we'll get to know the difference between trail angels and trail magic. We'll also talk about some cute, fuzzy, pain-in-the-ass critters he encountered along the way, as well as the culture and varied personalities of the through-hiking community, and also learn about the mission of the Pacific Crest Trail Association. The conclusion of 2,650, give or take a few, is just around the corner, or over the mountain, or through the valley, whichever you prefer. Off the Beaten Path is written, produced, scored, edited, mixed, and all that other stuff that happens in a production such as this by me. This episode of Off the Beaten Path was recorded at Nine Toes Studios and made possible in part by Anchor.fm, the easiest way to make a podcast. 
If you enjoyed the program, let me know. If you didn't, maybe tell me what you think can make it better. To do so, download the Anchor app and then find me at anchor.fm slash thewillman. That's T-H-A hyphen W-I-L-M-A-N. Or you can simply email me at resradioguy at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave me a message so you can be part of the show. Thanks again for listening. For Off the Beaten Path, I'm the Willman, also known as DJ Skittles and now Sweet Willie Ninetoes, saying go out there and pursue your passion, live your life, then come back and talk about it here on Off the Beaten Path. Thank you.